being in the kitchen with my guys every single day is really truly like a happy place for me and being on the line with them you know like doing service being on the pass it's it's you know it's a stressful job as you know like it's it's just a different kind of stress and anxiety it's just it's it's the kind of one where you're engulfed in it and you want to be in it all the time this is the crackling i'm anthony huckstep Many chefs have a dream of making the big time, carving out a career, building the foundations of skills, and then creating their own restaurant. Many fulfill the dream of finding their lane and discovering their style, but few take on the world and make a mark on the biggest food capitals on the planet. For Chef Paul Donnelly, his career has taken him all the way to the Big Apple. Paul, you're originally from Glasgow. Did you ever have dreams of ending up as a chef in New York? I mean, look, t- to be honest, I, I remember I remember leaving Glasgow to move to Australia. And one of the first trips I ever had leaving Australia, excluding going back to Scotland to visit family, was to New York. And I remember on that trip coming with like 10 grand. I think I actually took out a bank loan from Westpac to fund that trip. Um, and I, I remember like hitting like all those kind of a, you know, like necessary restaurants as a young chef, you know, your Stone Barns, um, your EMPs, your Perses, your Brooklyn Fairs. Um, and I think after eating at those four restaurants, I think I was eating street dogs for the last, for the last couple of days. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, New York's such a massive um, hub for chefs all over the world. Um, fantastic food here. Um, you know, going out of the city a little bit further, the produce is fantastic, especially going upstate. Um, there's some awesome farmers up there and some awesome um, um, crops and whatnot. But um, yeah, completely like New York was always a big dream of mine. Um, just fortunate now to be living that dream. Take us back to Glasgow when you were young. What sort of role did food play for you and your family when you were a kid? So growing up in Glasgow, I remember like as an early age, my mum and dad were constantly working. My mother was a nurse and would work kind of a night shift at the hospital. Um, And my dad would just be coming off of a night shift, which meant mum would go to work and his dad was coming in. It would be straight up to granny's house for a few days. Um, And I remember my grandfather, who was a devout Catholic, you know, coming, coming into the house. And he's like, make sure you bless yourself before you get into your granny's kitchen. Um, and going into Grand's kitchen, um, so and actually you would have tasted um, some of her food actually, um, Anthony. Um, she'd be making black pudding not all the time, but now and again. You know, it was I think for like the home cook, you know, making blood sausage, black pudding. Um, you know, it's it's not easy. Um, you know, she'd be in there with putting uh, pig's blood that she just got through the butchers through a strainer. Um, and, you know, and then like, uh, she would cook the rice and everything, um, and fold, just folding everything. So like basic stuff like that, like seeing that was always interesting. And I'd be just standing on a, like a small stool watching her, um, probably eating a bag of potato chips or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, like my aunt was also a fantastic cook. Like I didn't spend a lot of time, um, in the kitchen as a super young child, just because of the way my parents kind of, a you know, with their careers and whatnot. Um, it kind of really kicked off for me when I kind of hit high school. Um, like that, like proper, like, wow, home economics class 
isn't just for girls like it's for guys as well and it's fucking it's fucking dynamite <laughs> um so yeah like i also like remember going to like uh grind's house for like big like christmas or new year's parties and there'd be this massive buffet out and there'd be everything in there like even just small things like sausage rolls but my grand would have made that puff pastry in the morning um you know well, tell us about when you first started working in a commercial kitchen. Do you do you remember that first day? I do remember that first day, and I was absolutely shitting myself. Um, so went to, so my my first job out of high school um, was um, at the Hilton Hotel, um, and doing that at the same time as doing my four year apprenticeship in the UK was 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 it four days four days at the restaurant and one day at school or culinary school um and i remember <laughs> i remember my first day going in and the head chef and the head chef was a guy called james murphy so chef was a guy called paul clark and i went in with my chef whites all pressed and my hat and my neckerchief and everything in and the first thing the sous chef said to me paul clark was he's like get that fucking necktie off mate you're not in school anymore and i was like jesus christ so i was kind of it was like rude awakening first day you know um and I, when I was part of that Hilton Hotel, like I was, it was one of the best hotels in Scotland at the time, and they had everything in there from like fine dining restaurant, buffet, seafood restaurant, breakfast a la carte, breakfast buffet, room service, um, and you know I know you were talking to Budalo, um not too long ago and listened to his podcast a few days ago, the way he was kind of describing working in a hotel as being really essential to a chef's career. I couldn't agree more with him. In fact, it was like a little spark that went off in my head and I was like, he hit the nail on the head there. It's really, really true to get that kind of like the event side of it, that vast, vast amount of food to be cooked and served in such a short space of time for say a wedding or whatever. Um, whilst I was doing that, I also kind of popped into um, a little old restaurant called Amaryllis, which sadly is not there anymore. Um, so I used to kind of a stage in there once every couple of weeks um, whenever I wasn't busy studying or um, at my own job. Um, and that was a lot of fun. That was the chef there was a guy called Dave Dempsey, um, who along with Gordon really kind of a tried to bring London style fine dining to Glasgow. Um, and a huge difference between, you know, the eating habits of Glaswegians and people from London, you know, like people I felt like in Glasgow, like the, don't get me wrong, the food was exceptional, it was amazing. But people in Glasgow, I feel like they just weren't ready for that yet. Like they kind of didn't get it. Um, and they were like, oh, why am I paying 30 pounds for a steak? You know, whereas like in London, those prices are justified. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons as to why, you know, Amaryllis didn't last that long, you know, even though I wasn't like properly employed there, it was just fantastic to go in and see what those guys were doing. and. Um, see David and Gordon wasn't there that much um but just to like kind of see that in the kitchen was awesome what did you take from your time uh in those early years in Scotland as a chef so obviously like the discipline side of things is fantastic um really helped me along the way but to be honest Anthony like one of the one of the things that I learned working in those fine dining restaurants early on in my career was I didn't really know how much I loved it um, that's not to say that I didn't love the food. I love food. I love eating, and I love going to the, like, like mentioned before, like Percy or Stone Barns. Like, it's some of my favourite things to do. But 
I think for me personally, it kind of a came to mind that I don't know if I want to be turning carrots into little squares or do you know what I mean? Like, and I think that was a big factor in me moving to Australia actually was like just the diversity of Australia, um, knowing, knowing that it was a place that I could have got a working holiday visa in, um, which I did get. Um, that was, that was a real turning point for me. Um, in the, the fine dining restaurants was realizing that I didn't really think that I wanted to do it. Hadn't fallen out of love with food or anything, just didn't really want to go down that path. Um, and then the next minute I was, yeah, on a flight to Australia. Well, take us to that time you made the call to come to Australia. Um, what, what did you think of the culinary landscape once you actually arrived? So as soon as, so, so, okay. So when I moved to Australia, just prior to moving, my dad was like super sick. Um, and I had mentioned to him that I wanted to go. I was like, Dad, I think I'm, you know, I might pack up my bags and maybe I'll do a year in Singapore or a year in, I don't know, a year in London or a year in Australia. And I remember my grandfather sitting in that conversation saying, I think you should really go to Australia. I was there back in the 50s and had an opportunity to move there. But your bloody grandmother didn't want to leave her mother. So we ended up staying. <laughs> um so unfortunately, my dad didn't survive much longer and he left me a little bit of inheritance money. So homage to him for making my dreams come true, me being able to move to Australia. I used that inheritance money, um, took a flight with a couple of grand in my bank account and, you know, landed on the shores. Um, and I kind of, I took a, kind of I took like a couple of weeks break just to kind of get to know the area I was living in in Sydney. And then I pretty much got a job, job straight away. I started working for Maryvale. Um, which I worked there for an awful long time and kind of I just worked my way up there. But I was just, I was in awe of the produce in Australia so much, particularly the seafood. The seafood reminded me a lot of Scotland. Like I'm sure you're aware, like Scotland's got some of the best seafood in the world as well, especially when it comes to crustacean, crabs, lobsters, prawns, scallops, oysters. Um, and I was, I was super impressed. And as a young cook, it's kind of a, one of those things you can really want to fall in love with the move to a foreign city is knowing that, you know, you're going to be cooking with good stuff. Um, and yeah, it was, I was super impressed. You mentioned that you uh, spent over a decade with, with Mary, the Maryvale group, and you started there not long after arriving in Australia. What, what was the first job you got with the group? So the first job I took was, um, was actually a commie chef working with, Sean Pressland at Ivy Teppanyake in the second floor of the Ivy. Um, so that was like back in the day, Sean Pressland had been at Sushi E prior to that with a whole team of um, at Sushi Saito, um, Shimpei Hatanaka. I think those guys, I think Shimpei's probably still part of the Saki group in Melbourne. Um, and at Sushi Saito's got a, or he did have a sushi restaurant over in Kozines called Ats. Um, and Sean had then moved from Sushi E to the Bahamas and come back from the Bahamas to be open up Ivy Teppanyaki, <clears throat> excuse me, Ivy Teppanyaki and Sushi Chu. So I came on there as a commie chef um, and had never worked in a wok before, never worked on a tepan grill before, never knew that Japanese food was anything more than sushi, kushiyagi, teriyaki, all those little bits and pieces, um, having just moved from Scotland. Um, and I remember I just grabbed that roll by the throat. I was so obsessed with watching these guys breaking down 
fish for sashimi plates in like the matter of seconds, watching some of these guys working on a walk, watching this Russian guy called Sergei Kulikov, absolutely rocking this tepan grill where he'd been working in Russia. Um, and I was like, this is, I know that Asian food is the direction that I want to go in. It was just, it was so exotic for me, you know, like super, super exotic for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's why I've stuck to it for the last, what, 15, 16, 17 years. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't think I'll ever go back to cooking anything else. It's just, I just don't have the same love for it as I do for, you know, Chinese, Japanese or Southeast Asian cuisine. Well, that moment triggered your interest in that cuisine. Tell, tell us where, what the key moments were for you as you built your career and rose, rose the ladder in Maryvale. So one of the, I think one of the very first ever March into Maryvale's, I don't know if you remember those um, events that Maryvale put on over the course of a month during March, Dan Hong had been asked to do an event at Ivy Teppanyaki, which was going to be more of a fine dining experience for the guest, but with all Vietnamese flavours. And I don't actually think I had properly met Dan yet. In fact, I hadn't met Dan yet. The first time I met Dan was at that event and he brought along Louis Tikram to kind of help him with that event. Louis was working at Long Green at the time, I think, just before Louis went off on a big hiatus around the world. And I just remember like tasting pho and tasting a banh mi and tasting a kanjua and all these little bits and pieces that Dan would put together, sweet corn ice cream. And thinking to myself, does this guy for real? Like, this is unbelievable. Like, I just, I couldn't get my head around it. Um, and then the next minute, Ivy, Ivy Teppanyaki shuts down. I've got a fantastic relationship with Dan Hong. Um, Miss G's is starting to come onto the the cards with, you know, like the thoughts that Justin and Dan and Jao, you are kind of thinking, let's do something kind of along those lines. Um Nothing kind of, a, the needle didn't really move on that for a while. And then Teppanyaki shut down and Sailor's Tie opened up. Do you remember Sailor's Tie came into the Ivy for a bit? So I ended up deciding to stay in that restaurant that was changing into Sailor's Tie. Sean Presland and some of those boys were moving down to open Sushi Chew. And um, Frank Roberts sent me down to work at Sailor's Tie at the Rocks for a couple of weeks just to kind of see how I felt about the Thai cuisine. So I ended up hanging out there for a couple of weeks with Ty Bellingham and again, blown away by just all these flavours that growing up in Scotland, we'd, we'd never really known what that was, you know, like, there's no fucking Thai restaurants in Glasgow in the 90s. Um, and it was it was honestly like some of the best experience I've had in my life working in that kitchen down there at Sailor's Thai with Ty Bellingham. Um, and Charles Leon would pop his head in every now and again because he was like heavily involved with those guys a little bit prior to that. And obviously Dave Thompson, who was who wasn't there any longer, was in Nam. Um, but I actually think he came in one afternoon to have a meeting with Peter about something. And just it was incredible. Um and it kind of really set me up for that integration of eventually going to Miss G's um and being part of a team there that was in my time there, it was the the best the best team that Miss G's had seen. Um, I know it's I'm sure it's evolved and everything now, and those guys have done fantastic stuff. But just that team of special chefs that was there was, was incredible. Well, Miss G's made a huge impact on sort of the new wave of dining in Sydney. Um, tell tell us what it was like working in that kitchen and the sheer volume of guests and and what you were doing. 
so I, I remember first going in there and, you know, started off in the Garmin J section, went over as a junior sous chef. Um, and I'd actually had a conversation with Jao and Dan prior to going over there as possibly going over as a sous. But I was a little bit apprehensive about the move. And I think I was moving house at the time. And I just wasn't sure if moving jobs so quickly was good for me. Um, so I ended up missing out in the sous position. Nigel Stanley took that role and did a fantastic job. Um, so I went in as the junior sous, started on the Garmonger and obviously just worked my way up through the kitchen. But that, you're talking the team back then, Anthony, of Dan Hong, who was in the kitchen seven days a week, uh, five days a week. Jao at you, head chef. Nigel was the sous chef, Patrick, Fries Patrick Friesen, myself, Victor Leong came a little bit later on in that time. Katie Choi, who's now got Fizzy's, Fizzy's bread, she's doing the bread thing. Um, and then TK from, um, he had the Korean restaurant around the corner. Um, can't remember what it was called. It was, um, it was fantastic. He's now back in Korea. But it was just like a team of just everybody on the same page. Isu Lee was there, who's now in Paris at Import-Export. Um, and it was just like a team of everybody who was on the same page. Everyone was really skilled. Everyone was on time. Family meals were banging. Like there was never really like that struggle of, of show him what to do. Everybody was just fantastic. Um, and that that is probably to date one of the most special times of my career was working with that team. Um, and the food that was just being put out there was just like pushing the boundaries on everything. We were using a bounty of produce that was just fantastic. Um, and that was really kind of a like quintessential to like my development working under Dan and Jal there. Really, really kind of raised the bar for me to see how successful these guys were, like listening to their instructions, watching their technique, like sharing sharing the palate that those guys had um has really you know worked wonders for me in my career and they, i'll be forever grateful to them and you know justin as well and the, the gm at the time who was dan skinner who's actually now my gm <laughs> um was yeah nothing shy of incredible pork underpins a lot of southeast asian cookery how important was it with what you were doing at Ms. g's at that time we had a bunch of pork dishes on that menu that was I remember particularly one dish that I think Dan had put on, obviously with his Vietnamese background. It was a it was like a charcoal grilled pork, like a charcoal grilled pork neck that'd be marinated in coconut and white pepper, and then cooked over coal, and then sliced thinly, and there was shrimp in there, and we stuffed it inside this huge bun siao with like this acidic rice vinegar, lime juice, like spicy dressing. Like everyone ordered that. It was on the banquet menu. Um, that was one of the the best dishes on that menu there was we also had this um charcoal grilled pork chop with like a lemongrass sake um and it was all sliced up with a kind of a, like an asian style pico de gallo with like lettuce cups sesame leaves that you kind of a, like rolled your own adventure like bosam if you will and then of course there was the the bosam that we had on which the the crispy pork cock with the five flavor sauce the apple kimchi again with the said lettuce cups um yeah, we had a lot of pork on that menu, which was awesome. What is it about uh, Southeast Asian cuisine that inspires you so much? I think a lot of it, obviously, coming from like working with people like Dan and Jao and then spending that little bit of time with Ty Bellingham. And then I'd done a brief internship um, at NAM with David Thompson 
for about I think two or three weeks, um, which was awesome. Maryville kind of a looked after me on that, sent me over there, um, spent a bit of time doing that whilst I was still at the Sailors Tie thing. So I feel like trips abroad whilst living in Australia to you know Japan, um, Hong Kong, Bali, um, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Thailand really kind of a hit home for me about where can you you can really take this cuisine to the ends of the world there's no real there's no real rules with it it was you know like which was i guess what kind of a what miss g's really built its reputation on was breaking the rules of southeast asian cuisine um it was just like oh, the, the flavor again going back to talking about like growing up in scotland like lemongrass coriander uh beetle leaves galango ginger like those kind of a things are like really simple to the modern chef and well-known but I think like back in the day for me as a young cook having not seen them until I'd really moved to Australia or traveled across Thailand was one of the big reasons and why I decided to stick and run with um, Southeast Asian cuisine and really try and push the boundaries on what it can be and kind of a takeaway from the people you know like the critics out there who go oh it's just a curry well it's not just a curry like do you know how long it takes to pound these pastes um they're super super complex and in-depth recipes um, but yeah, I had such a fun time, you know, traveling around all those regions and learning a little bit about um, the palate of Southeast Asia. Let's talk about New York. How, how did how did it even come about? Um, so, <laughs> probably going to confess this for the first time, but um, so I remember being on um, a trip. Actually, we had such a good year at Miss G's, my last year at Miss G's, that as kind of a, like a thank you to me and Dan Hong for like, you know, keeping it financial, labor cost in control, food cost in control. Um, Frank had sent me and Dan over to Thailand for a week as like, oh, just for a holiday. Like go over there, eat whatever you want. Maryville's paying for everything. So we done that. And after that, I went to Dubai with Maryville again to go on this recruitment tour where Merivale would go to like Dubai. I think they've done Mexico as well, where you try to recruit people to bring them back um, and offer them a position so you'd sponsor them, um, which I think Merivale kind of had a goal mine with that because a lot of their current recruits now, like sous chefs, junior sous chefs across the venues, just through social media I'm seeing are still there and progressing their career, which is fantastic for their growth. But whilst I was in that trip for Dubai, I got a call from... Um, my current business partner and close friend, Eddie, um, who, you know, was interested in maybe doing some sort of consultation gig with me. So he says, like, why don't you come out to New York for a week? I'll show you the space that I've got in mind um, and see, you know, would you like to do a tasting for us? So I came out, done the tasting, kind of a proper, when I say like proper time I'd spent in New York, like the last time I was here, I was literally bobbing around on train to train, flight to flight to get different parts across the country, different restaurants. So I was able to kind of really spend a bit of time in the city and I just kind of fell in love with it straight away. Um, got to the end of my week and Eddie and his business partner, who's now my business partner, a guy called Jeff Lamb, um, who's a general contractor, so kind of builds restaurants, offered me the position. Um, and it was just... It was just really tough to say no to because, you know, I was the head chef at Miss G's, but as much as I love Dan Hong and respect him so much and he's done so much for me, like I needed to kind of get out and do my own thing without having to, you know, like 
ask permission to put a dish on the menu, which Dan was super supportive on, on stuff like that. You know, like if I wanted to put a dish on, the rule is do a dish. If it's better than the dish you want to take off, we put it on, which I think is completely fair. But I just really needed to go out and do my own thing and prove, prove to myself that I was capable of doing it without under the watchful eye of Dan. Um, so that was kind of a one of the big things for me to move here was to do that. Um, in saying that I had such a short turnaround period, um, after I'd moved here, I'd moved here in the October 2016. Um, I gave Maryville three months notice, moved here the 2006, no, October 2016, and had to have the restaurant opened in November 2016. So I literally had like a four week turnaround. I had no chefs. Um, I had no purveyors. I didn't know who to go to to get food, staff, like anything. Um, ended up um, bringing out Noel Jelfs, who was my sous chef, who later who later on went to be on the head chef at Chinese Tuxedo as I was trying to prepare to open the Tiger, um, who'd come over from uh, Rockpool, um, who'd actually just come off the back of winning the Josephine Pinelli Award. Um, who is now um, a head chef at Merivale. So he's, you know, it was fantastic to have Noel with me for those few years here. He gave me four and a half, five years, um, which was awesome. He's now, he's now doing his thing back in Sydney, um, you know, standing on his own two feet. But moving out to New York was, it was s such a fantastic opportunity. It was very difficult to say no to. Um, and yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, five, five and a bit years later, I'm still here you know, operating two restaurants, owner of one of them, um, and more venues on the horizon. So it's been a fantastic thing for me. Tell us a bit about Chinese Tuxedo. It's um, It's got glowing reviews. It's made a real impact uh, since its inception. Uh, what, what? Tell us about the restaurant. So I guess comparatively, if you can ever want it, you know, compare it to the tiger it's like you said it's it's more of a chinese kind of a scene um beautiful big round circular dining room very high ceilings a lot of brick on the wall kind of a, tried to keep the construction minimal in terms of restoring all that historic original um work that had been done in there um so chinese tixi was actually a very historic building it was the very first chinese opera house on the east coast of america um, which opened up in the late 1800s. Um, and like, just moving to the venue, particularly in the subterranean cocktail bar we've got downstairs where we've done almost nothing to the walls. Like you can see bullet holes in the walls from when like the Chinese gangsters would come through the, come through the, um, the front doors of what was Chinese tuxedo back in the day um, and like start, you know, shooting off their Tommy guns. Um, and we tried to keep a lot of like, the restoration there just because of the historical part and kind of a paying homage to the, 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 the area that we're in, which is Chinatown. Um, in terms of the, you know, like the business model and the way the restaurant operates, it's kind of a, just like a contemporary Chinese restaurant. Um, you know, we do have things on there like char siu and roast duck, just done a little bit differently than what your typical Chinese restaurant would do. Um, we have, a full wok section, steam grill, charcoal grill. Um, we just try to kind of stick to the traditional flavors of what it is, but just kind of a push the envelope on different produce that we use, you know. 
um, yeah, like for example, one of our desserts is uh, Chinese strawberries and cream. Chinese people typically don't eat strawberries and cream, but the we have a beautiful strawberry custard on the bottom with a strawberry and lavender shaved ice with a star anise ice cream um, with some fresh berries. So it kind of has that kind of a, and there's some uh, sweet goji under there as well. So those elements of um, produce that Chinese people would typically eat, but maybe just not done like in that style. Um, and you can never see that across the whole menu. You mentioned that when you first arrived in New York, you didn't know any producers and didn't have any connections. Have you had, tell us about the connections that you have made with producers. Have you, is there a local um, pig farmer that you use that you can tell us about? Yeah. So obviously like five years in now, um, you kind of know like all the big, you know, farmers, um, even suppliers like Pat Lafreda, who is out here, who's, he's like the Anthony Paharic of here. Um, and I use a butchers um, in Soho on Sullivan Street called Pino's Prime Meat Market. And it's literally, Anthony, I'm not joking. It's, it looks like it's a hole in the wall. It's super tiny. But what those guys do out of there is absolutely incredible. Like imported Kobe beef from Japan. They've even got like a freezer with like New Zealand scampi. Um, Kuribara pork. Like they've, they have got everything. It's like the creme de la creme for like a local butcher. Um, and something that's been super special about working with these guys is like being introduced to where they where they get their meat from. So um, all my all my pork comes from Amish farmers in Pennsylvania, um, which is super awesome. Like I remember going up there a couple of years back with one of my chefs, and it's like it's literally like how you see it in the movies. Like they're they're on their horses pulling a cart behind it sowing the oats um and just just the way that they kind of are treating their animals like there's been times where he said to me i'm sorry i don't have any pork at the moment you know just because they do everything so well um and it's the same with beef all my beef comes from amish farmers upstate um and my all my poultry comes from a poultry farm out in brooklyn so my chickens, my ducks, um, and I recently, I recently had squab on the menu. Just took took off due to a seasonal change, um, but getting to know like the farmers here is really, really important because getting access to the best produce that they've got is kind of a, what we expect from the restaurant. Um, by the time it gets to our cooks to prepare it, you know, pork underpins a lot of Chinese cuisine. Tell us about some of the dishes that you have on the menu that kind of champion it as a, as a hero on the plate. So we've got a, I think we've got three or four pork dishes on the menu. Um, obviously one of our signatures is our uh, honey glazed pork chashu. Um, super, we serve it super simple. It's served with some um, um, snow peely brass, slow cooked um, pork. Then we hit it with a bit of honey and then super charred in the oven. So it's really nice and tender. Um, and we use the neck, um, very similar to what most um, Chinese restaurants in Australia do for that. And then obviously we have the important pork dumplings on the menu, which everybody loves. Um, we have a, st- a stir-fried, um, marinated stir-fried pork loin with cashew nuts and black pepper. Um, and in the past, we've had a classic sweet and sour pork on as well, which everybody loves. Um, one of the challenges that we kind of have 
and Chinese tuxedo with pork is, is that because we're not your typical Chinese restaurant, and don't get me wrong, we do have pork on the menu and have had a lot, but... Over the last couple of years, you also launched the Tiger. Tell us about uh, that venue and how different it is to Chinese tuxedo. So the Tiger, actually, we opened up pretty much bang smack in the middle of COVID here a couple of months after. So we opened up the Tiger 2000 and September 2020. So we just had our first birthday. And, oh, my God, I remember coming out of, like, quarantine. I know you guys have just come out, but coming out of quarantine, having to get Chinese Tuxedo reopened, but also having to get the Tiger open because we've just fucking spent tens of thousands trying to get this place ready to go. Um, so that was that was a massive challenge. But once the Tiger was opened, it was super rewarding to see like all our regulars coming down from Chinese Tuxedo to show that support. Um, and also just to be able to have like a bit of a different meal from what they would have at Tux. Um, the Tiger is kind of a more Thai influenced, which is why we called it the Tiger. So T-Y-G-E-R, which is also named after the famous William Blake poet from the 1700s. Um, and yeah, like I said, very Thai influenced, a lot of Vietnamese cuisine on there. My head chef, Daniel Lee, super talented young guy, um, looks after a lot of the menu along with myself, um, a lot of curries on there. So. I guess kind of a like, to be honest from my heart, like I really missed Miss G's when I moved over here. And originally, like I missed my team. I missed the, I just missed the banter with the guys and I missed the food. Um, and I think taking the opportunity to open up something that's kind of a, has very similar aspects and concept to Miss G's for me was a dream and also super rewarding. Um, like we've received awesome feedback from, you know, the locals and afar as well. Like we're full every night. We'll do anywhere from 250 to 300 people on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then we're talking four to 500 people on the weekends. Um, it's a busy, busy, busy restaurant. It's a lot busier than Chinese Tuxedo. Um, but it's also a very different restaurant to Chinese Tuxedo. At the top of the show, you mentioned your grandmother's recipe for black pudding. Is there any uh, secrets or tips that you can share on how to create the best one? Is this for you personally, mate? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, look, off, 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 off the top of my head, um, my grandmother cooked so much of it um, and she done an absolutely fantastic job of doing it. Obviously, primarily the, the main ingredient is, you know, obviously blood. Um, she would vary from putting rice in it to oats. Um, suet is obviously, beef suet was obviously a big part of it. Um, and then obviously the quattro piece, the cinnamon, the nutmeg, um, garlic, chopped onion. In fact, do you remember, do you remember I did the, the black pudding taco um, at El Loco? Mm, that's right. So that was her, that was her recipe. Um, and yeah, a little bit of cream, some eggs. Um, and then we, yeah, she used to just, she used to, um, she actually used to take the mix into the butcher, right? And she would have the butcher put it into the into the sausage casing. Um, and then she would take it home and she would just steam it or she would boil it. Um, and then we would just slice it up and we would pan fry it with HB brown sauce. That was kind of a, like a snack. Um, some white bread, some butter, HB brown sauce, and a big fat slab of pan fried black pudding. It was incredible. 
um, messed up. Well, Paul, you've gone all the way from Glasgow to, you know, receiving two stars in a review in the New York Times in New York. Um, what is it that you love about what you do? Oh, there's so many aspects. This is this is one of those questions where you can literally go on and on, and you know me, I could go on and on. See, so just going in every single day and just like getting in. I usually get in around ten o'clock. If I'm going to tie, get in around ten. I've got a prep team who've been in for eight, and they've got their music going, and they're just they're in the zone. And you might have the pastry chef who's making the smoked coconut sorbet, or I'll have Jose in the back who's you know got four curry pastes on the go just getting in there and smelling those aromas of watching what my team's doing and seeing what they've also accomplished and where they're going in their careers is a big thing. Um, obviously, like taking care of a couple of venues, it's really difficult to be in two places at once. So like having such a fantastic team that I trust, that I know that's going to put out the things the way that, you know, that, you know, as a business, the way we should, what our customers deserve, what they're paying for is one of the biggest rewards. Um, but just, just being able to still be at the stage in my career where I can still handle food and not be sitting behind the desk, punching numbers and doing scheduling. Like I'm in there with my guys on a day-to-day basis, prepping, making dressings, tasting the sauces, being on the line with them, you know, like doing service, being on the pass. It's, it's one of those things that's super addictive. And, you know, I dread the day when it's time for me to kind of retire, which I know is still a while away, but just being in the kitchen with my team is is fantastic. They're my family, you know, like I come home to my fiance every night, Aaron, which is fantastic. But being in the kitchen with my guys every single day is really, truly like a happy place for me. And um, as you know, it's a stressful job, as you know, like I know you've been in the industry as well for a long time. It's it's just a different kind of stress and anxiety. It's just, it's it's the kind of one where you're engulfed in it and you want to be in it all the time. Well, Paul, your success is uh, inspiring and we've loved having you on The Crackling today to hear just a bit of your story. Um, Please keep in touch. Good luck with the new projects and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thank you so much, Anthony. It was awesome to hear from you and um, I'll be tuning in for the upcoming episodes with all the other chefs. You guys are doing fantastic things. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.